Welcome to Aligned Expressions, the new podcast series by Sherry Burton Stein. In this series, we'll be talking everything from home, lifestyle, yoga, and feng shui. And I am your host, Sherry Stein, and it is a pleasure to have you connecting, growing, and learning with me through Aligned Expressions. Welcome back, my friends, to Aligned Expressions, your go-to podcast for all things lifestyle, design, and personal transformation. I am your host, Sherry Stein, and today we have a truly remarkable guest joining us, Dr. Toby Israel, who is a pioneer in the world of design psychology, and her insights have reshaped the way we perceive the connection between our surroundings and our inner selves. Dr. Israel is not just a practitioner, she's a visionary founder of design psychology. This innovative field fuses the realms of architecture, planning, and interior design with psychology as the principal design tool. Her work has been showcased on major platforms, including CBS Sunday Morning, NPR's Talk of the Nation, and the Radio Times. With a background in environmental psychology and over 25 years of experience spanning design, psychology, the arts, and education, Dr. Israel has worn many hats. She's been an environmental consultant in the United States and the UK and a project manager for the research division of LRK design firm, the visual arts coordinator for the New York, New Jersey State Council on the Arts, and a professor at the University of Lincoln School of Architecture in the UK. All of this centers around Dr. Israel's latest book, Designing Women's Lives, Transforming Place and Self. We will get a sneak peek into this amazing episode as we dive deep into the world of design psychology, exploring the history of women in interior design. Also delving into Dr. Israel's enlightening interviews with renowned female clients in the design industry and discussing the role of women in placemaking. We'll also be touching on women's unique perspectives on design and the fascinating world of color therapy. We will also be enlightened into this wonderful journey into the intersection of design, psychology, and the power of place. I want to welcome Dr. Toby Israel to this episode of Aligned Expressions. Well, hello, my listener. I just am so thrilled and excited to bring on Toby 
for our podcast today. So, Toby, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I just want to say how excited I am to have read your book. And uh, this book is just amazing. So I just wanted you to know that. I was so excited to get this in my hands. And as soon as it came out, I purchased it and have been studying it and reading it several times over. And I am extremely interested in knowing uh, a little bit more about you as well as your background and how you became a design psychologist. I know you get into that uh, a lot in your book, but for my listeners who have not had a chance to read it, if you could just give us a little bit of background about who you are and how you show up in the world. Sure. Well, as I describe in the book, Designing Women's Lives, Transforming Place and Self, I thought in my 20s that I wanted to become an architect. And I looked at all sorts of architecture school course catalogs, and most of them talked about courses in either aesthetics or technology. And what I really wanted to know about was the people part place. So I was kind of stumped and I was like, okay, what should I do? And then I came across the field of environmental psychology. Environmental psychology is a research field where people look at the connection between environment and place and people, how the environment affects people and people affect the environment in order to create a fit or match between people and place. So I ended up getting a PhD in environmental psychology from the City University of New York. And I love my environmental psychology colleagues and the things they research, which range from anything from pollution, noise, crowding, to the meaning of place and home, which is the area that I was interested in. But a challenge that environmental psychologists have is that in the design world, usually there's so many deadlines that people don't have time to read the research when they're programming or creating a new space. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I founded the field of design psychology, which I define as the practice of architecture, planning, and interior design in which psychology is the principal design tool. And the point of design psychology is to create places that are not only beautiful and functional, but are socially and emotionally satisfying. I am just so excited. And um, I know I keep saying that word, but that's just what comes to me. Excitement is good. Yes, it is. (laughs) And my background is both urban planning as well as interior design. So, you know, this whole idea of placemaking, this whole idea of your book, which I will mention, um, is Designing Women's Lives, Transforming Place and Self, uh, is so uh, in my wheelhouse. Um, And particularly focusing on women uh, per se, uh, as a, a group, a gender group, as it pertains to how women see space, uh, how women experience placemaking. And I would like for you to tell my listener a little bit about how you came to this wonderful book. 
Yes. Well, after uh, I founded Design Psychology, I uh, began to give workshops and actually wrote a, a first book called Someplace Like Home about uh, the design psychology process, which uh, consists of nine exercises, a design psychology toolbox that I administer to people. And I was getting lots of people sign up for the workshop, but I realized that almost all of them were women. And so I'll just, in answer to your question, I'll just read a portion from my book. I, I said, why mostly women? I thought maybe it was because the field was something new. Design psychology's digging through the emotional bedrock of one's life environment is so different from the objectively oriented, traditionally male-dominated field of architecture that's masterminded our built world. So over the years, I watched women struggle to fit into that world. And given their struggle, I wondered, is there a woman's way of knowing crucial to placemaking that's been discounted? My speculation about women and design psychology led me to ask a bigger question. Is there, in fact, a whole realm of human experience that needs to be laced back into the built world? Mm. If so, rather than struggle to fit in, shouldn't women especially be pioneering a new way of making environments? So those questions were just kind of hanging in my mind. Mm -hmm. And that was really the motivation to write the book to answer those questions. Right. Well, I love the interviews that you have done with various women in the design and architecture industry, as well as Gloria Steinem uh, was really amazing uh, reading about her story. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about how you chose those individuals to be highlighted in the book? Um, were most of them your clients or uh, can you just talk to us a little bit about them? <clears throat> right. Um, well, uh, apropos of my previous book, I thought about and interviewed three famous men in the world of design. But mm-hmm. then I thought, well, OK, I, I felt guilty. I hadn't really uh, looked at famous women. So um, the women I chose to work with. Uh, the famous female architects. Uh, one, Margot Grant Walsh, was someone who uh, had come on my radar years before I wrote the book. Um, I had worked with her, taking her through what I now call my design psychology toolbox exercises yeah. that um, kind of uh, uncover uh, design that's within you psychologically. Um, and because I had contact with her previously through a client, I chose to work with her. Uh, the other woman who I, famous architect who I took through the process is Denise Scott Brown. Um, she's probably one of the most famous architects Ooh. in the United States. She won first female, living female architect to win the AIA, American Institute of Architects, gold medal. Uh, so she's an amazing person, and that's why yes, I chose her. Yeah. And then I uh, tried to balance it with other people whose stories I think I thought were relevant uh, in terms of their space reflecting their self. Well, it's it really works, and it really kept my 
interest throughout reading the book and the way you tell the stories and woven it into the next chapters. You know, they just continue as if I am actually watching a documentary in which I'm seeing you talking about these individuals visiting visually (laughs) uh, their spaces and talking about them. And this could easily be an amazing um, documentary. But going down, let's make a documentary. (laughs) <laughs> yes, let's do it. Um, so I love the portrait of the, uh, the story of Margot uh, Grant Walsh. Um, for some reason, her stories really spoke to me. Um, and I think because um, part of my heritage is um, Native American um, from the indigenous culture. And um, you, you speak about her humble beginnings being raised in an indigenous or Native American reservation. And um, I really was interested in how you worked with her to begin to think about uh, her story from that perspective and wanted to ask you if you could maybe talk a little bit about her story and how she embraced her childhood memories of living on a reservation um, and incorporating later those aspects of Native art uh, into her home. Okay, well, first of all, Margo Grant Walsh broke the glass ceiling when it came to women in architecture. Mm-hmm. She uh, became the managing principal and vice chairperson of Gensler Worldwide, often considered the best, the biggest architecture firm in the country. But she started off, uh, as you mentioned, very humble beginnings. Uh, She was the daughter of a Native American father and a Scottish Canadian mother. She was born and raised in her early years on a Blackfoot Indian reservation. And it was a place of complete deprivation. There was no plumbing. There was no electricity. They only had one green couch. Uh, Not only was it a place of deprivation, but of oppression. It was ruled and ruled with an iron hand by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And under their thumb, no one had any say about anything. But then something happened that changed not only the course of history, but Margot's family life. And that is the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. Uh, It actually opened up an opportunity for the family to move to Portland. And they moved to what Margot described as an arts and crafts bungalow that was warm, wooden, uh, comfortable, and dignified. And from that nest, Margot had complete determination to make it in the world. And she ascribed that determination to two messages from her mother. One was, be successful to justify my marrying a Native American after being ostracized from the wider family. And two, whatever you do, don't go back to the blanket, the blanket being the term for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So with those messages planted in her, she uh, left home with absolutely nothing, worked her way through a series of design jobs uh, and worked her way through school, not telling anybody uh, about her Native American background, pretty much keeping that secret. Uh, and. As she 
then entered the uh, work world, she faced uh, typical sexism, <laughs> you know, abusive uh, uh, treatment in many ways, and uh, she just kept going and, and rising up. So it was interesting when I went to visit her to take her through the nine exercises that are in my toolbox uh, for me to see what her space looked like. Uh, for one thing, she lives on Sutton Place, you know, a very uh, high-class neighborhood. And the apartment, living room, uh, front rooms are all very sophisticated. She had bright red walls, uh, a Chinese screen, an oriental carpet. In fact, the oriental carpet uh, had a story to it. She said the first oriental carpet she ever saw was one shown to her by her professor. And it kind of symbolized the uh, world of sophistication she was about to enter. Also in that room were uh, these wonderful arts and crafts pieces of silver, part of a wider collection, many of the pieces now in the museum, including the map. And um, it wasn't until we went through the exercise that she realized that unconsciously she had chosen uh, this arts and crafts silver as kind of an unconscious echo of that uh, arts and crafts bungalow in Portland that she had uh, such fond memories of. While the front rooms seemed to reflect her later success, the back rooms also echoed that arts and crafts bungalow. She had uh, many arts and crafts pieces of furniture. It was much more modestly designed. So kind of to sum it up, these different kinds of spaces seem to reflect the two different sides of herself. Yeah. Uh, person of Native American heritage and the later New York sophisticate. Mm -hmm. So how do you integrate those two sides? Well, interestingly, I didn't get to finish the last exercises with her. She's so busy until yeah. many, many years later. And when I went back to the apartment, the red walls were now painted beige because she said she wanted the beauty of her silver to come through. So it was also almost like she'd begun to integrate those two sides of herself uh, and become uh, you know, more fully whole. Very I interesting. Just, yeah, I just think that the exercises, which we'll we'll talk about in a few minutes, you know, had her begin to think about some things. And that's what I took away from it, that she began to absorb the thinking around her past and her present. And and started working on those in between the times that you all work together. Uh, would you agree? I, I kind of feel like that's that she kind of sat back and and really kind of started thinking about, you know, her space and her heritage and so forth. And I just I don't know why that particular story touched me. So um, it was just. I, I just really felt some affinity to that. What What were your thoughts? Well, I don't know if she sat back. You know, these these <laughs> famous people are so busy. I they know. barely have time to breathe. <laughs> right. So I think she just kind of, you know, on the market set, go back to work. Um, whether or not anything operated subconsciously, I can't say. 
But right. I do know that I certainly sat back <laughs> and thought about what she'd said and, you know, what it all meant in terms of her home as a symbol of herself. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so I also wanted to just ask you, um, going back to your role as a design psychologist, and um, I saw on page 27 of your book, you write, as a design psychologist, I learned by now that homes that the homes we create tell stories of self. And I was wondering if you could expand on that statement as far as our listeners who may be for the first time hearing how our humanness, our life, our experiences are reflected in the way we shape and experience home. Can you talk about that for a minute? Right. Well, that phrase that I just used, the house is symbol of self actually uh, comes from a colleague of mine, Claire Cooper Marcus, who really influenced me. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I now have come to believe too, we all have this unconscious uh, sense of place that's connected to uh, our sense of self. Mm -hmm. So um, what the design psychology process does is help us kind of design from within. So like an example of that is the first exercise I do with clients called an environmental family tree. Uh, it's not an exercise like a junking, jumping jacks or calisthenics. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a visual exercise. It's a, a actual tree with boxes on it where I ask people to use words to fill in in those boxes that describe both a large scale environment and the uh, dwellings that their ancestors lived in going back as long as they can remember or what they were told. Uh, perhaps they didn't visit those places, but got an impression. And the reason I do that, um, apropos of the house symbol of self, is that we say that everyone has an environmental autobiography, a personal past history of place. Mm. And believe that we rework that past history of place. We replicate it, we reject it, or do some combination of the two, again, often unconsciously. Mm. So um, maybe your listeners have had the experience where they're looking and looking for a new home. Uh, nothing seems to be right. Uh, suddenly they walk in and they go, yes, this is it, to mm -hmm. some place they've visited. And it may not even have fit their criteria like nearness to work or four bedrooms, but it may be a place that in some way unconsciously uh, reflects their past self mm -hmm. or past history of place. So what I do with that environmental family tree is I ask people to look at what patterns have been repeated in their family over generations, what has changed, and most of all, how that past history is reflected in their space. Mm -hmm. And then look at it uh, kind of critically. Well, is it reflected in a positive way? You know, what are the positive messages and meanings of those environments of your ancestors from the past? And how can you embed that in your place uh, in the present? Yes, um, I remember doing that in a workshop with you. And it was a 
it was very enlightening because I never really thought about my ancestor spaces. And it was a little bit of challenge for me from the standpoint that I had little connection with my ancestors from the standpoint that both my grandparents um, were dead. And I I only saw one of their homes and I had to really struggle to to remember what it looked like, but I did remember (laughs) it, it had like a lot, like a light turquoise um, color throughout it. And I just remember it smelled really musty, Um, you know, and she was um, very, she was extremely old. I did get a chance to meet her just before she died uh, on my mother's side. And I really remember that the space was very airy and uh, there was wallpaper and, and so forth and, you know, wood floors. And so it was a really great exercise and one that I really feel that a lot of folks who are looking to think differently about their spaces and their homes really can do a justice for themselves to go through that exercise, as well as the hierarchy exercise, which reminds me of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Can you talk a little bit about that one as well? Because I have experienced that and you have that in the book and it's so eloquently represented as you talk about the different individuals you've encountered and how they uh, looked at their spaces um, from that perspective. Right. Uh, I will talk about Massa, but I just want to interject one thing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that your grandparents' house was musty. Yeah. I gather that wasn't a pleasant uh, yeah. aroma. And if then I think, well, it's no wonder that you got into aromatherapy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, isn't that interesting how that link? Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, as I was talking about it, I was like thinking, oh my goodness, you must have been reading my. <laughs> but yeah, I really love aromas are like a big deal with me. So um yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it goes all the way back to there. And perhaps your listeners are all thinking, oh my gosh, now that you mentioned right. my <laughs> grandparents, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm doing such and such. So yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Really I just wanted I just wanted to throw that in. But anyway, sure. um, Okay, so Maslow, uh, a lot of people know that humanistic psychologist who felt that we are all motivated to become what he called self-actualized human beings, whole, fulfilled people. And he believed that we could only become self-actualized if we satisfied a hierarchy of human needs from need for shelter, uh, need for uh, connection, esteem, and so on. Well, what I've done is I've transposed Maslow's hierarchy. And I say, in order to have a completely fulfilling place, a self-actualized place, you also have to fulfill the need for shelter, which is kind of, you know, the roof can't leak, it can't uh, fall down. Uh, That's why architects concentrate on uh, technology aspects, but also it has to satisfy psychological need social need, uh, aesthetic need, 
and the need for growth. And it's my experience, again, in the deadline-driven business of design, yes, architects concentrate on the bottom of the pyramid, necessarily shelter and aesthetics, but the middle pieces, the social and emotional, are like the poor stepchildren that are often left behind. So um, this uh, design psychology uh, hierarchy, as I've adapted it, is actually the last exercise in um, the design psychology toolbox. And it's kind of like a checking up uh, exercise where I say, okay, you know, show me how, or I think about how, yes, you've satisfied each one of the levels. And if um, the uh, participant can't really uh, check a certain box, it's like, okay, there's nothing in my house that uh, relates to me emotionally, or there's nothing in my house that really works to keep my family uh, connected, you know, once, once we're all home from our busy day, then all right, that's where uh, you need to put in some work and thinking. So it's very different from looking at, okay, you know, did we get a permit and did the electricity uh, meet the standards? It's a very different approach. Okay. I really think that there's a lot of value in an individual working through that as well as examining what their ideal home is. looks like and what they want. And these are really great tools, particularly as a person maybe looking for a new home. Yes. To really understand what it is that they want out of it and making sure that they, their place of residence meets their personal, professional and wellness needs as well. Um, so I just wanted to to add that. Now, you, you have worked through a lot of this yourself. Yes. And you had talked about on page 95, you discuss how adding design elements helped you to visualize your long desire to learn how to sail. Um, So can you discuss the relationship between interior design elements in a space and personal visualization and how this kind of approach informs what I call the feminine approach to interior design, which I felt was present in your writing throughout the book, the celebration of the way the female looks at space. Can you make some linkages there? Sure. Well, very much uh, that project, which I'll talk about in a second, related to the emotional aspect of place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what I say in the book is that women have been culturally conditioned to express emotion, uh, connection, look at um, ways to collaborate, the social aspect, to be empathetic, um, much more than men have. So really, um, they're well positioned to create kind of uh, spaces that are more holistic, again, that they're not just looking at function and aesthetic. Um, But 
uh, it's been very hard for women to pave that path. More and more uh, women architects are entering the profession, which is great. But um, historically, a lot of uh, what we see in shelter magazines and what's taught in schools is modernism, which is, you know, very uh, often minimalist, white. Uh, It doesn't reflect your personal life, your journey, uh, who you are. Uh, And instead, I believe that you can create transcendent, liberating design, what I call a TLD, like TLC, embraces you. (laughs) (laughs) So transcendent, and then it creates a sense of awe. You know, it's not just the soulless shopping center or or a concrete box that are some of our schools that we put kids in and liberating in that it allows uh, each person, especially with women leading the way, to express who they are and where they are in their journey. So with that preamble, the sailing project. Um, A number of years ago, I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. I did the most reasonable thing, which was I totally freaked out and melted down. And Mm. I thought, okay, let me get, pull myself together and get the best medical treatment available. But I also thought, was it possible to create a space via design psychology that was a healing oasis and that would help me through uh, the six weeks of radiation that I needed to undergo? So design psychology as you've heard me talk so far, always really focused a lot on the past and the present. But as anybody can tell you who's gone through a life-threatening disease, what they really want is a future. And when I thought about my future, one of the things that I thought was left undone was I had always wanted to learn to sail. Mm -hmm. So I decided to create a bedroom space um, that in some way uh, kind of uh, help me envision a future healthy life where I would be sailing. So uh, with that in mind, uh, the way my bedroom is configured, it's at the end of a long hallway. So I painted the back wall behind my bed, a deep navy blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each time I came back from uh, daily radiation sessions, it looked like I was walking into a deep, dark room. But actually, when I walked in there, I'd painted the other three walls, this hopeful springtime green. So the room kind of popped up, like there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it was meant to be a definite metaphor there as um, there's light at the end of the tunnel of this treatment. But beyond that, apropos of sailing, I uh, created a a bed space that had greens and blue uh, sheets. Uh, that were reminiscent of the colors of water. I also used white uh, curtains that looked like sails, and they had these round grommets for the curtain rod that looked like portholes. Uh, I used seashells to hold my jewelry, and there is a Berber beige carpet underneath. On one side of the bed, I put a painting of a sailboat in the storm where I'd been, And on the other side of the bed, I put painting of a sailboat in a sunset where I wanted to go. It was all very subtle. It wasn't like a hoi matey or a captain's wheel, 
but all again meant to work together with those design elements that created an oasis by design. I began the project on my first day of treatment. I finished it on my last day of treatment. And two weeks later, I was out sailing. Mm. Yeah. Listener, (laughs) I want you to hear this, how you can visualize and manifest through your interior. I talk to my audience about this kind of work all the time. So that's why that really stuck out for me in the book. And you will see, I have all these um, (laughs) little tabs and notes and stuff throughout the book. And it's just an incredible book. I just want, so I have one more question um, before we go. And I know we have, I could talk all day about this because of my educational background. Um, So one of the things you talk about is a grief space and you, you know, talk about a story of a, a couple, but on page 145, you talk about grief, quote unquote, space suggestions. And you say, remember that there's no right or wrong regarding ways you choose to change your environment as your life changes. Give yourself permission to change your home, your space, and objects in a way that best supports your well-being. As your life changes, consider new room uses. Choose new colors and furniture and display special objects that enable your voice to emerge. Grasp the opportunity to use such design psychology to envision your positive future. Gain confidence in your own strengths and grow in new, perhaps unexpected ways. So here's my question. Part of the work that I do is a little bit of grief therapy. And what I mean by that is my population, my people, my clients are largely midlife women who have gone through maybe losing a partner through death, separation, divorce, or what have you, um, are grieving the former self as this young vulturous woman who was doing a lot of things and so forth. And they're in this transition period. So in a sense, that is grief, you know, in a way. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I specifically work with is as a woman is changing in midlife is looking at her space and saying, okay, let's start with color. For me, color is the basis. You talked about color in your story, how you went and painted that wall blue. And that was a representation of the beginning of your journey in your space, as well as your treatment. Um, Can you talk about how color transforms in a level of grief um, in a space as from a design psychology point of view? Right. Well, so much of what I read always talks about color and personality, uh, the various aspects of color, you know, all of which is very interesting. 
But what I really talk about is the personal associations that people have with color, the kind of psychological dimension. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, in the story, one of the stories in the chapter about uh, transformation by design, uh, I talk about a woman who lost her beloved husband. Mm -hmm. She was living in Florida. Uh, She moved back to her home state of New Jersey with one folding table and a chair and had to start not just to uh, buy new furniture, but to recreate her whole life. And when looking at her family tree, uh, she had a very interesting background. Her father was uh, Chinese, Hungarian, Jewish (laughs) ancestors, and her mother uh, lived in Kansas and was uh, from Irish uh, ancestors. So how do you put all that together? Right. The home she grew up in was all beige. It was very kind of blah. Yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it wasn't a color that could bring you out of yourself at all. Right. But in digging further with her, uh, I learned that she had been a bilingual teacher. And the colors that inspired her were the aquas, the reds, the oranges that she'd seen in visiting Guatemala, Honduras, Puerto Rico, et cetera, et cetera. And she really gravitated towards those colors, which she felt would be bright and uplifting, a kind of antidote to Mm -hmm. depression. So, you know, the objects that we chose, the wall colors, um, a kind of bright, uh, the the main rooms are kind of like a bright yellowy color. Um, The bathroom has this uh, jaunty orange, the bedroom has blue. Uh, So those color choices were all meant to be uh, very personally related to who she was. But then also there's other things in terms of uh, not just liberating, that transcendent liberating design, the liberating part, but the transcendent part. So for instance, um, to go on the blue wall, we chose Matisse's print of dance. Some of your listeners may know where there's women dancing in a circle. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking actually at that page right now. Yeah, her yeah. mother had been a, a dancer. Yeah. And so we put it right in her bedroom on the blue wall uh, so she can be thinking of a future when she's not grieving, but uh, similarly dancing, which she loves to do too. Awesome. You are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You're an awesome interviewer. So how can our listener purchase your book? Where can they find you? And do you have anything that you'd like to share that may be coming up in the next six to nine months that maybe might be of interest to those who are listening to this podcast? Right. Well, uh, you can get the book, uh, obviously, on Amazon, that website, or on my publisher's website, which is Oro Editions. Dot com. Uh, right now, I'm working to get the word out about this book because I really feel like I'm hopefully uh, looking to women to pioneer a new way to think about creating the built world. So the more people that get the word out and tell others about this new perspective, the happier I am. I also have a Robe to Wellness project that I do in the meantime. Besides uh, working on my bedroom oasis when I was ill, I also created a hospital gown like the one that I wore to my treatment. Um, it's 
rather than wearing that UGG, you know, disempowering hospital gown, I created a uh, Chinese robe. Uh, if you go to robetowellness.com, you can see uh, not we'll only put that the, in the show notes as well. Yeah, not only the robe there, which has uh, interesting botanicals and life enhancing design, but uh, I created a robe to wellness sewing circle. I ask women to send in messages of cheer, like in deep waters, friends carry you. Women in the sewing circle sew those messages, which I transform into labels, into the collar of the gown. So as they sew, uh, they not only tell their stories of their journeys, they support other women while they sew, almost like an old-fashioned sewing bee. And then those robes are available to hospitals and individuals. Nice. Awesome. Are you going to be doing any more workshops or trainings? In the uh, uh, watch this space. Right now, I'm getting <laughs> the word out about the book and doing the writing. Okay. Well, um, yeah. I, it was an honor to study with you last fall. I did catch COVID in the middle of it, but oh, no. I really appreciated, you know, um, learning from you. Um, it was just really fantastic. And you're, you're an excellent um, teacher. And I do resonate with, with the work that you do and, and am trying to incorporate uh, a lot of that in the work that I'm doing now. So um, I wish you well, and I will tell any and everyone through this podcast and through other methods, I think actually the book would be a great textbook in an architecture program or an, interior, or an interior design program. I think that is a, a direction that you might want to consider as well as, as talking to institutions of higher learning in those areas uh, to I'm, bring that in. I'm definitely approaching uh, those people about designing women's lives as well. All right. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. And um, I look forward to hearing and watching more of what you end up doing. Thank Thanks. you, Sherry. Thank you.